0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of calcaneus fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Calcaneus fractures are the most common fractured tarsal bone and are associated with a high degree of morbidity and disability. Diagnosis is made radiographically with foot radiographs with a CT scan often being required for surgical planning. Treatment is non-operative versus operative based on fracture displacement and alignment, associated soft tissue injury, and patient risk factors. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the incidence of calcaneous fractures, these injuries are common as the most frequent tarsal fracture. Know that 60-75% to 75% of injuries are interarticular fractures and 1-3% to 3% are calcaneal tuberosity fractures. In terms of anatomic location, 17% of calcaneus fractures are open fractures. However, there is no significant increase in infection rates. However, there are increased risks for wound complications. Calcaneus fractures can also be calcaneal tuberosity fractures with the peak incidence in women in the seventh decade of life. Moving on to the etiology, as far as pathophysiology, the mechanism of intraarticular calcaneus fractures are a traumatic axial loading, which is the primary mechanism of injury and this can be secondary to a fall from a height or motor vehicle accidents. The mechanism of calcaneal tuberosity fractures include a violent contraction of the triceps surae with forced dorsiflexion, as well as strong concentric contraction of the triceps surae with the knee in full extension in the setting of poor bone quality slash osteoporosis. Know that with calcaneal tuberosity fractures, there's intrinsic tightness of the gastrocnemius and Achilles tendon, and these injuries may also be related to peripheral neuropathy, leading to decreased pain sensation and proprioception, resulting in recurrent microtrauma. Calcaneal stress fractures can be secondary to increased physical activity in the setting of relative energy deficiency. Finally, the mechanism of anterior process fractures are a twisting injury mechanism that can cause an avulsion injury of the bifurcate ligament. Now let's talk a bit about the pathoanatomy of calcaneus fractures. We'll go over intraarticular fractures, extraarticular fractures, and anterior process fractures. So in intraarticular fractures, the primary fracture line results from an oblique shear and leads to the following two primary fragments, that is the supramedial fragment, otherwise known as the constant fragment, and the suprolateral fragment. The supramedial fragment, or the constant fragment, includes the sustentaculum tali and is stabilized by strong ligamentous and capsular attachments. The superolateral fragment includes an intraarticular aspect through the posterior facet. Secondary fracture lines dictate whether there is joint depression or a tongue-type fracture. In the setting of extraarticular fractures, there's a strong contraction of the gastrocnemius soleus complex with concomitant avulsion at its insertion site on the calcaneus. Note that this is more common in osteopenic/osteoporotic bone. Finally, in the setting of anterior process fractures, Inversion and plantar flexion of the foot cause avulsion of the bifurcate ligament. Associated orthopedic injuries with calcaneus fractures include extension of the fracture into the calcaneocuboid cuboid joint, which occurs in 63% of cases, vertebral injuries in 10% of cases, and contralateral calcaneus fractures in 10% of cases. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, let's talk about the osteology, and we'll go over the articular facets, sinus tarsi, sustentaculum tali, and bifurcate ligament. Starting with the articular facets, know that the supralateral fragment contains the articular facets. The superior articular surface contains three facets that articulate with the talus. The posterior facet is the largest and is the major weight-bearing surface. Know that the flexor hallucis longus tendon is medial to the posterior facet and inferior to the medial facet and can be injured with errant drills slash screws that are too long. The middle facet is anteromedial on the sustentaculum tali, and the anterior facet is often confluent with the middle facet. Moving on to the sinus tarsi, know that between the middle and posterior facets lies the interosseous sulcus or calcaneal groove that together with the talar sulcus makes up the sinus tarsi. Moving on to the sustentaculum tali, this projects medially and supports the neck of the talus. The FHL passes beneath it, and know that the sustentaculum tali is represented by the constant fragment. Remember that the deltoid and talocalcaneal ligament connected to the talus. The sustentaculum tali is contained in the anteromedial fragment, which remains constant due to medial talocalcaneal and interosseous ligaments. Finally, the bifurcate ligament connects the dorsal aspect of the anterior process to the cuboid and navicular. Now let's talk about the classification of calcaneous fractures. Note that extraarticular fractures make up 25% of cases, and intraarticular fractures make up 75% of cases. Extraarticular fractures are typically avulsion injuries of the anterior process by the bifurcate ligament. They can also be avulsion injuries of the sustentaculum tali or the calcaneal tuberosity, which is an Achilles tendon avulsion. Moving on to intraarticular calcaneus fractures, the classification systems to know is the Essex-Lopresti classification and the Sanders classification. Starting with the Essex-Lopresti classification, know that the primary fracture line runs obliquely through the posterior facet forming two fragments. The secondary fracture line runs in one of two planes. The axial plane beneath the facet exiting posteriorly in tongue type fractures when the supralateral fragment and the posterior facet remain attached to the tuberosity posteriorly. The other plane is behind the posterior facet in joint depression fractures. The Sanders classification is based on the number of articular fragments seen on the coronal CT image at the widest point of the posterior facet. Know that the Sanders classification is divided into four types. Type 1 corresponds to a non-displaced posterior facet regardless of the number of fracture lines. Type 2 corresponds to one fracture line in the posterior facet which results in two fragments. Type 3 corresponds to two fracture lines in the posterior facet which corresponds to three fragments. And finally type 4 corresponds to a comminuted fracture with more than three fracture lines in the posterior facet which creates four or more fragments. Finally, let's quickly talk about the Beavis classification, which is based on fracture morphology of the calcaneus tuberosity. And this is divided into three types. Type one is a sleeve fracture, which is a small shell of cortical bone that evulses from the tuberosity. Type two is known as a beak fracture, which is an oblique fracture line that runs posteriorly from the most superior portion of the posterior facet. And finally, type three is an infrabursal fracture from the middle of the tuberosity. Now let's talk about the presentation of calcaneus fractures. These patients will typically have symptoms of pain, swelling, inability to bear weight, a gross deformity, or an open fracture. On physical exam, inspection may reveal ecchymosis and swelling, a shortened and widened heel, which may have apparent varus deformity. Patients may have open skin lesions or fractures, They may have posterior heel skin compromise and specifically you can have tenting, ecchymosis or lack of skin blanching with tuberosity fractures and this necessitates urgent surgical reduction and fixation to avoid posterior heel skin necrosis. Finally, inspection may also reveal fracture blisters which must be debrided and epithelialized prior to surgical intervention. Palpation may reveal diffuse tenderness to palpation, lack of heel cord continuity in avulsion fractures, lack of posterior heel skin blanching with tenting fractures, and be sure to assess for compartment syndrome secondary to swelling, although this is rare. Remember that presence of Langer's lines and skin wrinkles suggest the skin is appropriate for surgical intervention. In terms of strength assessment, these patients will obviously have decreased ankle plantar flexion strength with avulsion fractures. In terms of neurologic evaluation, be sure to assess for neurologic compromise due to swelling. And finally, in terms of vascular evaluation, be sure to assess peripheral pulses, and know that severe peripheral vascular disease may preclude surgical treatment due to poor wound healing potential. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, and oblique. Optional views include a Broden view, a Harris view, and an AP of the ankle. A Broden view allows visualization of the posterior facet and is useful for evaluation of intraoperative reduction of the posterior facet. This view is taken with the ankle in neutral dorsiflexion and approximately 45 degrees of internal rotation, and then you will take x-rays at 40, 30, 20, and 10 degrees cephalad from neutral. A Harris view visualizes tuberosity fragment widening, shortening, and varus positioning. You will place the foot in maximal dorsiflexion and angle the x-ray beam 45 degrees. Finally, an AP ankle demonstrates lateral wall extrusion causing fibular impingement. As far as findings on radiographs, you may see what's known as a double density sign, which represents subtalar incongruity and indicates partial separation of the facet from the sustentaculum, specifically the lateral portion of the posterior facet. Other findings can include calcaneal shortening, varus tuberosity deformity, a decreased bowler's angle, and an increased angle of gasein. So with respect to a decreased bowler's angle, remember this is the angle between the line from the highest point of the anterior process to the highest point of the posterior facet plus a line tangential to the superior edge of the tuberosity. The bowler's angle is measured on the lateral view, and know that normal is between 20 to 40 degrees. A decreased bowler's angle represents collapse of the posterior facet. As far as the angle of gasane, this is an angle between the line along the lateral margin of the posterior facet, plus a line anterior to the beak of the calcaneus. The angle of Gesane is measured on the lateral view, Normal is between 120 to 145 degrees and an increased angle of guessane represents collapse of the posterior facet. A CT scan in the setting of a calcaneus fracture is the gold standard and should be performed with 2 to 3 mm cuts. As far as the views, a 30 degree semi-coronal view demonstrates posterior and middle facet displacement. The axial view demonstrates calcaneo cuboid joint involvement and the sagittal view demonstrates tuberosity displacement. An MRI is used only to diagnose calcaneal stress fractures in the presence of normal radiographs and or an uncertain diagnosis. Moving on to the treatment of calcaneus fractures, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes cast immobilization with non-weight bearing for 6 weeks and cast immobilization with non-weight bearing for 10-12 to weeks. Cast immobilization with non-weight bearing for 6 weeks is indicated for calcaneal stress fractures. Cast immobilization with non weight bearing for 10 to 12 weeks is indicated for small extra articular fractures, defined as less than 1 centimeter, with an intact Achilles tendon and less than 2 millimeters of displacement. This is also indicated for Sanders type 1, that is a non displaced calcaneous fracture, a near normal bowler's angle, again, this is 20 to 40 degrees, an anterior process fracture involving less than 25% of the calcaneal cuboid joint, comorbidities that preclude good surgical outcome, for example, in the setting of a smoker, diabetes, and peripheral vascular disease, as this option avoids the high wound complications seen with these fractures. Castor mobilization with non-weight bearing for 10 to 12 weeks is also indicated for minimally displaced tuberosity fractures defined as less than 1 centimeter of displacement without a threatened soft tissue envelope in elderly patients with reduced function or physical capacity. As far as the techniques of this option, be sure to begin early range of motion exercises once the swelling allows. Operative options include close reduction with percutaneous pinning, open reduction internal fixation, and primary subtalar arthrodesis. So closed reduction with percutaneous pinning is indicated for minimally displaced tongue-type fractures or those with mild shortening, and it's also indicated in large extra-articular fractures defined as greater than 1 centimeter. Note that early reduction prevents skin sloughing and the need for subsequent flap coverage. This is ideal in patients with severe peripheral vascular disease or severe soft tissue compromise. As far as the technique for closed reduction with percutaneous pinning, you will insert lag screws from the posterior superior tuberosity directed inferior and distal. Moving on to ORIF, indications include displaced tongue-type fractures, large extra-articular fractures with greater than 2 mm of displacement, Sanders type 2 and type 3 injuries, anterior process fractures with greater than 25% involvement of the calcaneo-cuboid joint, and displaced sustentaculum fractures. Indications for ORIF in the setting of a displaced tongue-type fracture includes greater than one centimeter of displacement, threatened soft tissue, which requires urgent reduction in fixation to avoid skin necrosis, which is a disastrous consequence, open fractures, and know that open reduction allows for sufficient debridement of contaminated tissue, and another indication for ORIF in the setting of a displaced tongue-type fracture is a patient's inability to participate in closed treatment. Indications for ORIF in the setting of a Sanders type 2 and type 3 is posterior facet displacement greater than 2 to 3 mm, flattening of the bowler's angle, or varus malalignment of the tuberosity. As far as timing for ORIF, be sure to wait 10 to 14 days until swelling and blisters resolve and the wrinkle sign is present, which typically happens in 10 to 14 days. Know that there is no benefit to early surgery due to significant soft tissue swelling. Know that displaced tuberosity fractures with posterior skin compromise should be addressed urgently. In terms of outcomes, surgical outcome correlates with the number of intraarticular fragments and the quality of the articular reduction. Know that surgical treatment decreases the risk of post-traumatic arthritis. Factors associated with the poor outcome include age greater than 50, which has similar outcomes with surgical and non-surgical treatment, obesity, initial bowler angle of less than zero degrees, and know that these injuries do poorly regardless of treatment, and remember that a lower bowler angle suggests greater energy absorbed. Other factors associated with a poor outcome include manual laborers, open fractures, which are associated with significant soft tissue injury and energy absorbed. Other factors associated with poor outcomes include workers' compensation patients, smokers secondary to poor wound healing, bilateral calcaneal fractures, As these patients will have significant gait problems following bilateral injuries, multiple trauma, vasculopathies, and know that men do worse with surgery than women. Factors associated with the most likely need for a secondary subtalar fusion include male workers' compensation patients who participate in heavy labor work with an initial bowler angle less than zero degrees. Finally, moving on to a primary subtalar arthrodesis, this is indicated for Sanders type four fractures, and as far as the technique, this is often combined with ORIF to restore height. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. So starting with cast immobilization with non-weight bearing for six weeks, the technique involves a short leg cast for calcaneal stress fractures. These patients will be placed in a non-weight bearing cast with a well-padded heel. Moving on to cast immobilization with non-weight bearing for 10 to 12 weeks. In terms of techniques, these patients will be placed in a standard short leg cast applied with mild aquinas. These casts can be windowed over the posterior heel to allow for frequent skin checks. Keep in mind that these patients require close follow-up to determine if the pull of a gastrocnemius soleus complex displaces the fracture. Weekly cast changes are necessary due to high incidence of skin complications. Remember, there is a high incidence of vascular insufficiency and diabetes in this population. Moving on to close reduction and percutaneous pinning, this is ideal for poor soft tissue coverage or patients with peripheral vascular disease. The technique involves a stymion pin placed into the fracture site anteromedially to posterolaterally to leverage the fracture fragments into place. Additional K-wires and stamen pins are placed from posterior to anterior and lateral to medial to secure the remaining bone fragments. A calcaneal transfixing pin can be used to distract the fracture. Percutaneous tamps and elevators can be used to raise the articular surface. The pins are then cut flush with the skin and removed 8-10 to 10 weeks post-op. This can be combined with the distracting external fixator, where the pins are placed in the calcaneal tuberosity, cuboid, and distal tibia, and you can restore calcaneal height, width, and alignment. Close reduction and percutaneous pinning can be combined with percutaneous cannulated screws. Moving on to ORIF, let's first talk about the extensile lateral or medial approach. Know that the extensile lateral L shaped incision is the most popular. The vertical portion of the incision will be in between the posterior fibula and the Achilles tendon, the horizontal portion is in line with the fifth metatarsal base know that a more inferior incision protects the sural nerve. However, keep in mind that this approach has a high rate of wound complications, but it does provide access to the calcaneal cuboid and subtalar joints. Next, full thickness skin, soft tissue, and periosteal flaps are developed. The flap is supplied by the lateral calcaneal branch of the perineal artery. The superior flap contains the calcaneal fibular ligaments and the perineal tendon sheath. The sural nerve and the perineal tendons are retracted superiorly, then the lateral calcaneal wall is visualized, and then the fracture is opened and the medial wall is reduced, going medial to lateral. Know that reduction is confirmed indirectly via fluoroscopy. Tuberosity reduction is done under direct visualization. This is done with manual traction, chance pins, and mini distractors. Know that the pin in the tuberosity aids with the reduction. Height and length of the tuberosity is recreated, and know that the quality of the reduction affects the outcomes. Provisional fixation is typically done with K-wires, but definitive fixation is done with plates and screws. Know that bone grafting provides no added benefit in these cases. The goals of this approach is to restore congruity of the subtalar joint, restore bowler's angle and calcaneal height, restore width, and correct varus malalignment. Moving on to the sinus tarsi approach, know that a minimally invasive incision minimizes soft tissue dissection. This reduces wound complications associated with an extensile lateral incision. This allows direct visualization of the posterior facet, anterolateral fragment, and lateral wall. There is a lower incidence of sterile nerve neuralgia, and know that the same incision can be utilized for secondary subtalar arthrodesis or peroneal tendon debridement. This approach will also have a decreased surgical time. As far as the technique of the sinus tarsi approach, the patient is first placed in the lateral decubitus position, and then an incision is made in line with the tip of the fibula and the base of the fourth metatarsal, and will typically be two to four centimeters in length. The extensor digitorum brevis is then retracted cephalad to expose the sinus tarsi and the posterior facet. The perineal tendons are retracted posteriorly. Then a chance pin is inserted percutaneously in the inferior tuberosity going from lateral to medial, which provides distraction and aids with reduction. Then fibrous debris and fat is removed from the sinus tarsi. Next, a small elevator or lamina spreader is placed under the posterior facet fragment to aid in reduction. K wires are then inserted for provisional fixation aimed towards the sustentaculum. Two screws are then placed lateral to medial to engage the sustentaculum and support the facet. One large fully threaded screw from posterior to anterior will be placed to support axial length of the calcaneus. Then a low profile plate is applied underneath a well developed soft tissue envelope with screws engaging anterolateral and the tuberosity fragments. These patients will be kept non-weight-bearing for six to eight weeks post-op with ankle range of motion exercises beginning two weeks post-op. Note that the Essex-Lopresti maneuver is a maneuver to manipulate the heel to increase the calcaneal varus deformity. You will plantar flex the forefoot and manipulate the heel to correct the varus deformity with a valgus reduction. You will then stabilize the reduction with percutaneous K-wires or open fixation as we previously described. Now let's talk about arthroscopic assisted reduction and internal fixation. The benefits of this approach is decreased soft tissue dissection, preservation of local blood supply, removal of loose bone fragments, and improved visualization of the articular surface and cartilage lesions. The cons are increased setup, increased swelling from fluid extravasation, and it's technically challenging. This can be combined with the sinus tarsi approach. The technique involves the patient positioned in the lateral decubitus position. The fluoroscopy unit will be positioned posterior and oblique to the patient, which allows for axial hindfoot views. Anterolateral and posterolateral portals are used to visualize the posterior facet. Know that you will use a 2.4 mm 0 degree arthroscope. Next, the interosseous ligament is preserved, the hematoma is irrigated, and then loose bodies and cartilage fragments are removed with a shaver. The freer elevator is introduced into one of the portal sites and used to elevate the posterior facet. Reduction can be visualized directly. Then a chance pin will be placed to control the tuberosity fragment. Next, you will place cannulated screws from the posterior aspect of the calcaneal tuberosity to the anterior aspect of the calcaneus, which restores and stabilizes length. Lateral to medial screws are placed in the sustentaculum. Next, a buttress screw from the posterior aspect of the calcaneal tuberosity to the subchondral bone of the posterior facet is placed. Now, let's talk about the posterior approach for calcaneal tuberosity fractures. As far as the technique, the patient is positioned prone on a table. Then you will perform a posterior midline incision, and the fracture fragment is mobilized and debrided. Plantar flexion of the foot aids with reduction. Presence of gastrocnemius tightness may preclude reduction. Therefore, a strayer procedure may be performed to aid in reduction. You will use provisional fixation with K-wires, and then final fixation can be done with either lag screws, a tension band construct, or suture fixation. In terms of tension band constructs, a figure of eight tension band wire is passed around the ends of K-wires or cannulated screws. In a suture fixation, Krakow sutures are passed through bone tunnels. Note that these patients will be made restricted weight-bearing for 6 weeks followed by progression of weight-bearing an additional 6 weeks. Now let's talk about primary subtalar arthrodesis. Again, this is performed in highly comminuted Sanders IV intraarticular fractures, and know that there is a high rate of secondary fusion after ORIF with these injuries. A primary subtalar arthrodesis avoids added treatment costs and decreases time off from work. As far as the technique, this can be performed through an extensile lateral or sinus tarsi approach. Fracture reduction is performed in a similar fashion as RAF. Articular cartilage of the subtalar joint is denuded to the bleeding subchondral bone. Then cannulated compression screws are placed from the posterior calcaneal tuberosity to the tailor dome. Finally, a lateral fixation plate is applied to hold the reduction. Now let's talk about complications after calcaneus fractures. We'll go over wound complications, subtalar arthritis, lateral impingement with perineal irritation, sural nerve neuroma, damaged FHL, compartment syndrome, and malunion. So starting with wound complications, which are seen in 10 to 25% of cases, there's an increased risk in smokers, diabetics, and open injuries. You may consider non-operative treatment in these patients. Know that tongue type fractures are at high risk for posterior skin necrosis. That is greater than 20% of these injuries may go on to posterior skin necrosis. These patients should be splinted in 30 degrees of plantar flexion to relieve soft tissue tension. Be sure to keep all hardware away from the corner of the incision. Delayed wound healing is the most common complication. Moving on to subtalar arthritis, this has an increased risk with non-operative management, however it can be addressed with ankle bracing, the gauntlet type, NSAIDs, injections, and physical therapy. These patients may require bone block subtalar arthrodesis to address loss of calcaneal height. This is important when there are symptoms of anterior ankle impingement. Finally, remember you can perform an inside to arthrodesis with preserved calcaneal height. As far as the damaged FHL, the FHL is at risk with placement of lateral to medial screws, especially at the level of the sustentaculum tali or the constant fragment. Compartment syndrome is seen in 10% of calcaneus fracture cases and can result in claw toes. Finally, moving on to malunion, this may lead to loss of height, widening, and lateral impingement. Physical exam will reveal limited ankle dorsiflexion due to the dorsiflex talus with a tailored declination angle of less than 20 degrees. The treatment of malunion is a distraction bone block subtalar arthrodesis, which is indicated for chronic pain from the subtalar joint, an incongruous subtalar joint slash post-traumatic degenerative joint disease, loss of calcaneal height, and a mechanical block to ankle dorsiflexion, which results from a posterior tailor collapse into the posterior calcaneus. As far as the technique of a distraction bone block subtalar arthrodesis, the goal is to correct hindfoot height, ankle impingement, subfibular impingement, and subtalar arthritis. Now let's quickly go over the malunion CT classification and treatment, and this classification is divided into three types. Type 1 is a lateral exostosis with no subtalar arthritis, and this is treated with a lateral wall resection. Type 2 corresponds to a lateral exostosis with subtalar arthritis, and this is treated with lateral wall resection and subtalar fusion. Finally, type 3 corresponds to lateral exostosis, subtalar arthritis, and varus malunion. This is treated with lateral wall resection, subtalar fusion, and plus or minus valgus osteotomy, which is controversial. Finally, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis for calcaneus fractures, and know that the prognosis is poor with a 40% complication rate. This can be increased due to the mechanism such as fall from a height, smoking, and early surgery. Know that lateral soft tissue trauma increases the rate of complication. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. You have a 25-year-old male patient who fell from a 20-foot wall and is brought in by EMS. His only complaint is severe left heel pain. AP, oblique, and lateral x-rays of the foot are taken. On the lateral, you can see an intraarticular calcaneal fracture with depression of the posterior facet and loss of calcaneal pitch. After seeing the patient and reviewing the images, you make your diagnosis and decided that non-operative treatment is the best option. When you counsel your patient, what should you tell him is the most common complication of non-operative treatment for this injury? And the choices are 1. Non-union 2. Subtalar arthritis 3. Foot Compartment Syndrome, 4. Avascular Necrosis, and 5. Valgus Hindfoot Malalignment. The correct answer to this question is 2. Subtalar Arthritis. So calcaneal fractures that are treated non-operatively most commonly will have associated subtalar arthritis. To quickly review, calcaneal fractures comprise 65% of tarsal bone fractures and require a significant amount of force to produce. The force of the calcaneus being pushed into the talus often results in post-traumatic arthritis. 75% of calcaneus fractures have an intra-articular extension with the posterior facet being most commonly affected. The treatment for severe post-traumatic arthritis of the subtalar joint is subtalar fusion. Shu et al. reviewed current methods of calcaneus surgical fixation. Previous L-shaped lateral approaches had high complication and infection rate postoperatively at 37% and 20% respectively. New methods include a limited sinus tarsi approach, percutaneous fixation, and arthroscopic assisted reduction. With these methods, there's decreased complication rates and less soft tissue injury. Jackson et al. reviewed distraction subtalar arthrodesis. Calcaneal fractures often have a loss of height, which results in anterior impingement of the tibio-talar joint. Restoration of subtalar height can be done via an open approach, use of a distractor to regain height, and placement of a graft to fill the void. With this method, there have been significant improvements in functional outcome scores and greater than 90% patient satisfaction. Buckley and Tuff reviewed displaced intraarticular calcaneal fractures and factors that affect surgical outcomes. Smoking and workers' compensation are risk factors for poor outcomes, while female gender and age less than 60 have better outcomes with surgical intervention. Heavy laborers have quicker return to work and lower incidence of late fusion. A Bowler's angle of greater than 15 predicts better functional outcomes in both surgical and non surgical patients. Sanders 2 and 3 patients had better outcomes with surgery. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, non union, is incorrect as non union of calcaneal fractures is exceedingly rare. Answer 3, foot compartment syndrome is incorrect as although associated with severely comminuted calcaneal fractures, Foot compartment syndrome occurs in about 10% of patients. Answer four, avascular necrosis is incorrect as this is more associated with tailor neck fractures than calcaneal fractures. Finally, answer five, valgus hindfoot malalignment is incorrect as calcaneal fractures typically develop a varus deformity due to the tuberosity fragment being pulled into varus. And moving on to the final question, which of the following is not commonly seen following malunion of a conservatively managed calcaneus fracture? And the choices are 1. Decreased hindfoot height and increased calcaneal width. 2. Hindfoot valgus with subfibular impingement. 3. Lateral wall exostosis with peroneal tendon irritation. 4. Subtalar arthritis. And 5. tibio-talar impingement. The correct answer to this question is 2. Hindfoot valgus with subfibular impingement. So the most common deformities associated with calcaneal fracture malunion are decreased calcaneal height, increased calcaneal width, hindfoot varus, lateral exostosis secondary to lateral wall blowout, and dorsiflexion of the talus resulting in ankle impingement. While not always symptomatic, subtalar arthritis also develops in the majority of cases. Although subfibular impingement does occur, this is due to the increased calcaneal width and lateral exostosis, and not due to hindfoot valgus, which is otherwise uncommon. Controversy continues to surround the benefit of operative management of displaced intraarticular calcaneal fractures. However, adverse sequelae of calcaneal malunions are well described. Treatment of calcaneal malunions depends on the clinical symptomatology and may include addressing one or many of the aforementioned pathologies. A CT-based classification of calcaneal malunion has been proposed and serves to direct management based on the most common individual and combined deformities. The goals of corrective surgery are to alleviate pain, improve fit of footwear, and improve walking ability. Shu et al. review the controversies and more recent advances in management of displaced intraarticular calcaneal fractures. The authors discussed the transition to more limited and minimally invasive approaches to reduction and fixation of these injuries with the goal of mitigating the traditionally frequent and significant surgical complications. Jackson et al. discussed the utility of distraction subtalar arthrodesis for the management of symptomatic calcaneal malunion in the setting of subtalar arthritis. The authors reviewed the surgical technique and successful outcomes following the procedure. They advocate for careful patient selection given the preponderance of radiographic but often minimally symptomatic subtalar arthritis following calcaneal fracture malunion. Griffin et al. performed a randomized control trial directly comparing operative versus non-operative management of closed displaced intra-articular calcaneal fractures. The findings of the investigation supported no significant benefit to operative management at two-year follow-up in regard to standardized functional outcome scores evaluating health, function, and quality of life they advocated for non-operative management given the substantially higher risk of complications following surgery. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, decreased hind foot height and increased calcaneal width secondary to fracture collapse are among the most common sequelae reported following conservatively managed calcaneal fractures. Answer three, lateral wall exostosis frequently results from lateral wall blowout and directly results in perineal tendon irritation, possible tears, and tendon subluxation. Answer four, radiographic subtalar arthritis is common following calcaneal fracture, though generally clinical symptoms are much less frequent. Finally, answer five, Tibio-talar impingement has been described to occur as a result of loss of calcaneal height and dorsiflexion of the talus. That's all for this review about calcaneus fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a 5-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the Ortho Bullets podcast.